You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. This morning there was an article that I posted uh, that talked about the five <clears throat> major reasons why people have disturbed intestinal microbiology. Uh, the two major types of intestinal disturbances we see from a microbiological perspective is uh, candida. This is a, a fungus that is naturally occurring in your intestinal tract, but due to a handful of reasons, it can, be, it can proliferate in a, in a major way uh, and cause lots of uh, disturbances in the intestinal tract. It can alter the function of the enzymes, the function of your intestinal skin, your ability to digest. You can create bloating, gas, and a host of issues, uh, tiredness, fatigue, you migrate out and cause problems in your energy and your vitality and brain fog. And you know, something that when I first went into practice back in 1984, uh, candida was sort of like the buzzword and that was followed up by uh, something called uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which was then followed up by something called Epstein-Barr virus. And uh, it was sort of trying to track down how these microbes were uh, migrating in different places or proliferating in ways that they shouldn't. And we spent a lot of years trying to kill those bugs. And I didn't use antibiotics. We would use, you know, grapefruit seed extract and oregano oils and things that were very harsh and would kill naturally natural microbial cytal agents that would take out some of these microbes. And they would get better. And we would use probiotics back then. Probiotics aren't a new thing. They've been around for 30 years plus. And we would use them. And, and, I, and it didn't take long before I realized I could get people better. They'd feel relief. But we weren't making any really major long-term progress because if you kill them, the, these bad bug bite microbes, they become more tenacious. And they become more resistant to whatever you're trying to kill them with. And that became a problem. People didn't get better. Uh, long term, they were better temporarily, and you kept, then you then you were fighting the next battle, which was chronic fatigue syndrome, which then became Epstein Barr. Now we have a virus that used to be a fungus that is causing the exact same symptoms, and now we fast forward to today, and we have this thing called SIBO, which is a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where bugs that should be in your large intestine are now overwhelmingly populating the small intestine. Small intestine has microbes, but not in major amounts like the large intestine where most of the microbes live. So this is a problem. Now we have these microbes coming out of your large intestine, going into your small intestine, and disturbing the ability for the enzymes to function and do their job. The ability for the little villi to be functional, because they're supposed to be lined by a very thin layer of mucus and good microbes that are naturally occurring. The wrong microbes can disturb that function and compromise your ability to digest well, destabilize your blood sugar and epidemic that we have today. It can affect your energy and your vitality and your, uh, your intestinal ability to not only absorb good nutrition in, but to also detoxify. So there's a, a whole host of problems that come along with this, very similar symptoms that we saw 30 years ago. Tiredness, fatigue, lethargy, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, you know, big, uh, you know, uh, bloating, burping, indigestion, heartburn, just real severe disturbances. SIBO has its own sort of uh, host of problems where people have very, very difficult 
time digesting anything because anything they put in their mouth either feeds the wrong bacteria and they proliferate and create more of the same problems. And this is a bit of a problem. So we have to kind of dive in and try to figure out what might be the cause of some of these things. So I wrote about five major causes that happen to be related to both of these conditions. And one of them is um, the, 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 the reduction of, and of the hydrochloric acid or the production of the acid in your stomach. And that allows bad bacteria to go into the small intestine from the stomach because the acid is supposed to break all these guys down. And if it doesn't, these, these, these bugs can actually enter into the small intestine and cause problems. And that's one issue we have to deal with. The other issue, major issue, is, is um, when the ileocecal valve, which is the valve that protects the, that separates the small and the large intestine, that valve breaks down in things that are supposed so it's a one-way valve. It goes, you can get, it can go from the small intestine to the large intestine, and then it's supposed to close. And when it closes, nothing should go through, but somehow that valve is breaking down and bacteria are able to migrate back up into the small intestine. So the two major causes of this are either bacteria infiltrating in from the top or infiltrating in from the bottom. And we have to deal with those two issues sort of straight away as our first priority. Other things that can cause this that are underlying factors are uh, chronic use of medications, which can disturb both of those factors, by the way. We'll talk about that. Um, a diet that is a processed high sugar diet uh, is a very, very important piece of the puzzle. We now know that, that um, a high fat processed food diet um, has been shown to disturb or destroy some of the really good bacteria like lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria that protect your intestinal skin um, from bad bacteria or irritation or inflammation. We also know that the lack of those bacteria causes dysbiosis, the inflammation or irritation or alteration of the microbiology in the small and in the large intestine. And it also is directly linked to the irritation and inflammation of your intestinal skin, which is designed to let certain things through and not certain things and, and, and keep certain things in. Uh, you have inside your intestinal tract, you have little villi, which are for uh, absorbing nutrients into the blood supply. And then deep inside those villi, you have what are called lacteals, which are the collecting duct for your lymphatic system, which are very, very important. Because if something broke down, let's say the hydrochloric acid in your stomach was actually um, weaker than it should. And foods, microbes, uh, proteins, wheat, dairy, corn, soy, nuts, things that are hard to digest, get through undigested, they haven't been broken down the way they should. Then what's going to happen, unfortunately, is um, these proteins in general, and microbes are proteins generally, uh, they don't get broken down completely. And they're too big, because they weren't digested properly, to get into the, the blood supply so they are actually uh, absorbed through the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system called the lacteals. And that is a problem because what we now know about the lymphatic system, which is a growing body of, of research that's coming, something Ayurveda talked about thousands of years ago. Lymph was the major system in the body we have to deal with and understand, the drains of the body. The lymphatic system drains your entire small and large intestine. And it is the house of your immune system. 
It is where 80% of your immune system lives. I wrote an article once called The Most Important Half Inch in Your Body. It's the relationship between the lymph on the inside of your intestinal wall and the lymph on the outside, or the villi on the in, lymph and the, and the lymph on the outside. And if that goes wacky on you, then you're going to have an immune-compromised situation where inflammation can begin to proliferate. And these lymphatic vessels can actually uptake things that weren't, they weren't designed to uptake. They are the garbage can, so they will take care of bad stuff like big undigested fats and big undigested proteins. Um, but they're not really designed to do that. Those should have been broken down by either by the bile, the fats by the bile, or the proteins by the stomach acid. If both of those are weaker, we got a problem, and those toxins go into your lymph and they congest your lymphatic system. Research has now shown that your lymphatic system on the outside of your intestinal wall can break down and, and age and inflame and become sclerotic just exactly like your arteries do. So we talk about arterial disease. This is a cause of heart disease and things like that. We haven't even begun to understand what lymphatic disease is, that the, that the lymphatic system can actually break down, inflame, become sclerotic, and become problematic and non-functional. We do know that fats like triglycerides, food fats basically, are supposed to get through your intestinal skin, through your lymphatics, and deliver energy in between meals. That's where your in-between meal energy comes from, it's from the triglycerides. But if that lymphatic system draining and delivering that in-between meal is congested or blocked, you're not gonna get in-between meal energy. You're gonna feel fatigued and tired. And let's rewind back to chronic fatigue syndrome and Epstein-Barr and Candida, the number one sign of those things were congestive issues, um, bloating, gas, tiredness, fatigue, exhaustion. And brain fog was a very big one of those as well. And now, you know, nine months ago, they discovered the University of Virginia lymphatics that drain the brain. Three pounds of toxic plaque and other really yucky toxins are drained from your brain every single year. They found those in the exact location that, the, that Ayurveda found them thousands of years ago, right across, like a mohawk haircut right across underneath inside your sagittal sinus. And those drains get clogged. That's when you get brain fog, tiredness, lethargy, uh, inflammation, autoimmune conditions have been linked to these, these lymphs that not only drain your brain, but they drain your entire central nervous system. So if your central nervous system is not draining well, then we have problems. If your brain is not draining well, we have problems. So all of a sudden, all these symptoms of Epstein-Barr and chronic fatigue and candida, and yes, even SIBO, are now sort of directly, we can't look at that without understanding the lymphatic system. And where does that start? In the intestinal skin. And is the intestinal skin going to become harmed by migrating microbes into the small intestine where they shouldn't be? Yes, for sure. We have to deal with that. So, so we're beginning to understand that, that your diet, which disturbs these microbes in the first place, has a lot to do with it. We've all been fed a processed food diet for the last 50 years, unfortunately, and that's a bit of a problem, but we are resilient enough to bring that back into balance. Diet was shown in one study to uh, be responsible for about 57% of the microbiology. Only 12% of that they considered to be genetic. They also found that when you eat a high-fat processed food American diet, Western diet, that within six weeks, there was a 71% increase of endotoxins, toxins in the cells. In other words, environmental toxins and toxicity that shouldn't be there found in our cells would increase by 71% after just six weeks of eating the Western diet. So there are problems. Now you gotta remember also that your digestive system is your ability to detoxify, and they both work together. 
And if you don't digest well, you don't detoxify well. If you don't detoxify well, you're probably not digesting well. You probably already have figured that out, that you can't digest wheat and dairy and corn and a whole bunch of stuff you can't digest. And people with SIBO, I know, I know, I know, you know this you know, very, very well. So let's dig in here a little bit. Let's talk about um, the most important, I think the most important thing, and this is also something that was so interesting that we used to treat years and years and years ago, and I haven't really heard much about this until SIBO became popular, and it's your ileocecal valve, your IC valve. This is a valve, if you wanted to find it, you find your navel, and then you can, if I lean back here a little bit, you can kind of see it, but your navel is here, and then if you feel, you find the, the, the big hip bone right in the very front, uh, on right above your thigh, and you find that pointy bone that sticks out right there, this is your hip bone. And you draw a line between the two, and you go right in the middle. And right in the middle there is your ileocecal valve. It's the valve between your small intestine and large intestine. And what happens is that valve can get stuck open, or it can actually get stuck closed. Now, if it gets stuck closed, stuff in your intestinal tract won't leave. And you can only imagine that can create more gas and more bloating and more... Uh, more inflammation and more irritation. The, the reaction to that in the small intestine can be to make reactive mucus production, and that reactive mucus production can become excessive. And in that reactive mucus, you have a, 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 an environment now for a lot of undesirable microbes to proliferate, which we don't really want in the small intestine. And that uh, can cause problems in the upper digestion and cause weakness in the stomach acid. I'll sort of take you step by step through that process in a minute. Um, but that, when it turns down the stomach acid, now you have food, you have microbes from the outer environment coming in, unbroken down through the stomach acid into the small intestine. Because the ileocecal valve is blocked, you have a lot of uh, dysbiosis and irritation, inflammation, and the wrong kind of, or a proliferation of bad microbes already in the in the uh, small intestine where they shouldn't be, and they can actually damage and block the enzymes to be able to digest, irritate and inflame your intestinal skin, and there we have real problems, okay? So that's when the valve is closed. Sometimes the valve is stuck open. Think of it like a zipper. When the zipper is up, it's closed. When the zipper is down, it's open. When it's open, then things can move through uh, the, in, in a more in an excessively rapid way, maybe causing looser stools, and, and undigested foods coming out before they're ready, before they're timed. So you see undigested food in your stool and, and looser stools and mucus in your stools because all that mucus is now coming through into the small intestine. In addition to that, the bugs in the, in the, there's nothing keeping the bugs from the large intestine from migrating into the small intestine and creating problems because the valve is open and the zipper is open. Well, in, um, there were techniques used way back, way back when that were mechanical techniques to sort of open and close that valve. And if it was stuck open, you could close it. If it was stuck closed, you could open it. And um, the techniques I want to share with you, and I've written an article about this, you can watch the video on this. Um, but very quickly, it's so, so simple. Think of it, like I said, it's a zipper. If it's zipper is closed, you want, you want a zipper is open, you want to close it. You want to zip it up. If a zipper is uh, closed shut, you want to open it. So if you, wanna, if you want to um, uh, <coughs> open the valve, um, uh, or I'm sorry, close the valve, because things are coming from the large intestine into the small intestine, you take that area, find a place between the spot between your navel and your, it's called your anterior, anterior, anterior uh, uh, iliac spine, right on the front of your pelvic bone right here. And, um, and you find the spot right in the middle, 
and you, search, you do a clockwise motion, and if you're trying to close the valve, which you are, you want to zip it up. So you pull up with your finger, so you're doing a circular motion, but you, as you're coming up on a clockwise motion, you're pulling up on that valve, coming back down, massaging, coming up. So you're coming up and closing the valve as you do that, right in that area, like an abdominal massage. A lot of times there's a soreness there, there's a little knob there, a little, little uh, bump, like a little golf ball sometimes. You can feel sort of a hard knob there. If it's very, very painful, really painful to touch, then, then you probably want to get that checked out by your medical doctor. But sometimes you can just feel a little lump. It's not that painful, just a little bit sore, and you can massage it out. It's clockwise motion with the upswing uh, pulling up as you close the valve. When you actually want to open the valve, you do a counterclockwise motion, and on the downswing, you push down to open up the valve if it's actually stuck open um, or actually stuck closed. And if stuck closed, everything stays. You get upper bloat in your stomach. You have issues like that, um, which generally is not uh, nearly as common, particularly in SIBO. It's usually stuck uh, open, and you want to actually close it and you close it by zipping it up, and you open it by zipping it down. So when you want to open the valve, you, your emphasis on the downward motion in your circle, your counterclockwise circular motion is downward, and then um, when you're trying to, uh, when you're trying to uh, close the valve, you're actually pulling up to kind of close that valve. Very, very simple technique. If you have soreness or pain in that area, it's an area that I highly recommend that you get in there and massage. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a technique that was used for many, many, many years. A lot of chiropractors use that technique very, very successfully because you may have a mechanical issue, which are more common than we think with regard to digestive issues. Um, let's fast forward up to the upper stomach issue here. <clears throat> And before I do that, let me explain something as to why that would happen. In Ayurveda, there is a thing called Udvarta, which means upward moving vata, and it causes a lot of problems. And it's something that we now understand in Western medicine, I'll describe it in a second, but it's caused by stress. When you have a lot of stress in your life, and like, who doesn't? We're always going 90 miles an hour doing many, many things. This stress causes the the body's energy, prana, life force, instead of going down for good elimination of reproduction, it's forced to go up to handle the world's problems and solve the world's problems. And when that happens, it puts upward pressure onto the, from the large intestine to the small intestine on the ileocecal valve, and it continues putting upward pressure on the liver, the gallbladder, and even the stomach, pressing up on the diaphragm. And that is a that can put so much pressure on the diaphragm that some conditions uh, can cause so much pressure on the diaphragm, the, diaphr the stomach can actually herniate through the diaphragm. The diaphragm is a big muscle across your, right underneath your rib cage here, and your stomach esophagus goes right through it, and your stomach hangs just below it. But if there's a lot of upward pressure, it can push up and actually herniate through. It's a thing called a hyal hernia, a very common condition. That hyal hernia can put so much pressure on the diaphragm, it can actually cause uh, a herniation, which means that that the stomach is supposed to hang off the diaphragm, not herniate through it. So there's got to be years and years of pressure pushing up on that diaphragm, causing pressure, to, and ultimately and eventually the adhesion of your stomach to the diaphragm. 
And this happens is exacerbated by pregnancy. When we get pregnant, there's a big baby in there, it pushes the baby up and the belly up against the diaphragm, and it can stick and stay there and cause indigestion for years to years to come after after the baby's been born, and cause indigestion and heartburn and a whole host of things like that. In addition, if the stomach is sort of stuck to the diaphragm, well, the diaphragm really can't contract either. In the lower lobes of your lungs are a parasympathetic rest and digest, rebuild, rejuvenate nervous system, the ones that keep you stressed free, calm you down, rebuild you. But if the diaphragm's got a big stomach hanging off of it, it really can't do that. So the diaphragm can't, doesn't allow us to contract and breathe deeply any longer, and therefore we don't have the rare going into the lower lobes of your lungs, activating the calm nerves, telling your body life is not an emergency 26,000 times per day. That's a huge thing, 26,000 breaths per day we take. And if we're not breathing deeply into the lower lobes of your lungs to keep the diaphragm really elastic, then the stomach and the diaphragm and the liver and the gallbladder, they become problematic just below there. And it becomes problem, problematic just above there. It's an issue. And that rib cage, if it isn't really moving like 12 levers 26,000 times a day, massaging your heart and your lungs and pumping lymphatic flow from the abdomen back to the heart, we have problems. And that can cause lymphatic congestion, more gas and bloating, more lymph congestive related issues, which makes you more tired. And the lymph, remember, is a system that does two things. It gets the good stuff in, good fats for energy, and it also takes proteins, and it also takes the bad fats out. So it's taking off your intestinal tract bad fats and good fats and proteins as well. So it's not just like the blood, the arteries are taking the blood in and the veins taken out, the lymphatic system does both. So it has like double duty, it's the largest system of our circulatory system in our body. So we keep going back to it because in Ayurveda, it is a system called rasa, which translates into rasayana, which translates as longevity. It is the longevity system. You don't live long without good lymphatic flow. In fact, a new study I wrote about recently showed that there's three major factors to aging the aging of the intestinal lymph that lines your entire intestinal tract, um, or the damage of that lymphatic flow causes aging, the damage of the intestinal skin itself, the epithelium of your intestinal tract causes aging, and the alteration of the microbiology, which lives on the intestinal skin and drained by our lymphatic system, all three of those, damaged or altered, are directly linked to the aging process. So it's a good place for us to focus in and hone in on. However, in SIBO and in, um, in Candida, we just can't go in there and repair the intestinal skin because we have these weird, wrong bugs in there that we have to deal with first. Okay, so let's talk about that. One thing, that upward-moving vata, that udvarta, what it does is it causes, the, it causes problems where the toxins that should be going to the toilet get reabsorbed from your intestinal tract back to your liver. It's called the enteric cycle. That's what happens in real life, not just in Ayurveda, but in Western science, the blood from your intestinal tract goes back to your liver. And if you don't have good fiber or good intestinal function or good microbiology, up to 94% of the, back of the bile carrying all the toxins, and bile is like a Pac-Man in your liver and in your intestinal tract, gobbling up toxins, gobbling up toxins. If you have a lot of fiber in your diet, those toxins go to the toilet. But if you don't have a lot of fiber in your diet, those toxins get reabsorbed back to your liver, and they congest your liver, and they inflame your liver, and they put fats into your liver, and they put fats back into your blood, into your brain, and create toxicity issues. This is a real, that's how it works. And, and as a result of that, you have poor bioflow, because the liver becomes congested, the bioflow becomes compromised, and now you have thick, viscous bile, congestion in your gallbladder, congestion in your liver, and you lose that Pac-Man function. 
Now, hunter-gatherers had fiber in their diet to the tune of 100 grams per day. The average American's got 15. So they had more than five times more fiber in their diet to, take, to attach the fiber to the bile and take it to the toilet. When we lose that, we lose the fiber to feed the good bugs in the intestinal tract. We lose the fiber to take the bile and the toxins to the toilet. And it all goes back to our liver, congesting the bile, making things worse. No bile, no really good bowel movements. Bile regulates the consistency of your stool. Bile also regulates it buffer, the major buffer of the stomach acid. So if you don't have good bile flow, let's say because you had years of constipation, years of loose stool, years of of problems eliminating on laxatives or Miralax or fiber or Allbrand or whatever it might have been that you did to get, keep yourself going to the bathroom. That, that bile will, those toxins will eventually get back from your, your intestinal tract to your congest your liver. Uh, that becomes a real, a real problem. So, so the, the stomach eats a bunch of food and says, hey, I got all this food here, proteins and fats, I need to buffer the acid to get still response. And it can then cause more of the upper moving pressure, more problems of indigestion, more problems with the diaphragm, more problems with the ribcage moving your lymph the way it's designed. And it can also, the stomach will say, and more heartburn. And the stomach eventually says, you know what, I got all this acid here, and this is bad, because I'm starting to get nauseous, I'm burning a hole through my stomach. So the stomach dials down the fire, and now you have an issue where you have no digestive fire. Now, undigested foods, uh, bad microbes from the environment, they find their way through the intestinal skin, uh, through the stomach, into the small intestine, into the intestinal skin, into your lymphatic system, causing a host of digestive-related circulatory issues. And that's sort of the, the main thing. Now, add, add um, medications, drugs, pharmaceuticals to this, and we have another whole host of issues. We know that medications destroy and disturb the production of stomach acid. It's well documented. Particularly, antiacids will turn off the acid. And when you do that, you have you know, an open door for microbes to come through and do whatever they want to do, get into the small intestine and wreak havoc. So that's not a good situation. But all medications, uh, antidepressants, and med or, or have all been shown to disturb the, the, the microbiology, to disturb, for sure, the microbiology, and to disturb the production of the stomach acid. So that is a problem. And troubleshooting the medications that you're on um, and really making sure that you need them uh, is really uh, something that is important in this process. And it's also important, you know, before we jump to medications initially when you're having problems, is to realize that there are there are three major camps that I think define our, our, our medical system. You have Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, traditional systems of medicine that were designed to help bring the body back into balance. Lifestyle, diet, exercise, retreat, herbs, like the herbs we use are whole herbs. They're plants ground up, put in a capsule. They have the microbes from the soil in the capsule to deliver the microbe from that season and that plant into your gut to keep your microbiology, your microbiome changing from season to season to season to season. Our foods are supposed to do that. Diet, exercise, all these things are natural medicines to help bring the body back into balance so the body can heal itself, okay? That's what I love, that's where I like to live, okay? If that doesn't work, then it makes sense to try something a little more aggressive to help do the job for the body, whether it be naturopathic medicine, 
which are or functional medicine. We're using bioidentical hormones or laxative therapies um, or uh, digestive enzymes. I'm not a big fan of those, but sometimes you need them. You know, uh, things to sort of do the job for your body in a natural way. And then you have Western medicine that does the job for your body any way it can to get the job done because it's sometimes life-saving. And that's what I call the three medical buffets. And I think it's important for us to have access to that. So if we have a little indigestion, a little heartburn, and we jump all the way to antacids, whew, we just went from helping my body do itself, helping the body do the job for my body naturally, to all the way to just do it for me because I'm too busy to bother. That's what we got to stop. And I think every one of those camps have value, really important value. And I think that's what makes that's what makes the world we live in today so wonderful. But a lot of folks don't know how to navigate those three different systems. And that's why I write all these articles to help folks figure out what they can do for themselves before we have to jump to a medication. Because now we're seeing these medications are really bad for your microbiology. I mean, now your microbiology is really important for every physiological function in your body. So we, the writing is on the wall. We have to stop using so many and definitely overusing medications. And that's the bottom line is that most of the medications that our people are on are probably overprescribed and they're not necessary. So that's the one thing you can do is go back to your doctor and say, Doc, do I really need all these? Can I really, can I, can I work? Can you work with your doctor to get you into a good lifestyle, a good diet, a good exercise, maybe some herbs and support yourself in ways that don't require so many medications. So that's the medication piece that's really important. Um, we talked about diet, you know, as you all know, I've written a ton about this. We put out every single month a free monthly grocery list where it's called the Three Season Diet Challenge. You can sign up for my, my homepage. It's free. It has recipes from Emma Frisch from the Food Network. Our seasonal grocery list has foods for every month of the year, recipes, superfoods, grocery lists. You know, in May and June and July, all through the summer, we actually have all the flowers that are in season that are blossoming and blooming in that month of the year, the ones that are actually edible. And the best we can, we, we put the, the information about what their benefits are. We don't do that here in the U.S., but in Europe, they're all about eating flowers, and, and there's some really incredible value there. So it's fun. It's great. It, it, it's exciting. And, there's the, and the idea is to get people to get reconnected to the microbiome and change the good bugs. Okay, So that's that. Um, and then stress, of course, we talked about, is really a big, big deal. Um, but let me try to be more specific, if I can. Um, one of the most important things that happens in nature every spring is nature says we have to start, start over. It's nature's new year. And how nature does it is the deer, they, in the spring, they dig up, uh, as the ground softens and the snow melts, they dig up these bitter roots like uh, dandelion and and Oregon grape and, and golden seal and burdock root and, and many of these rhizomes are, are bitter roots that are just under the surface of the ground and the deep roots keep the plant alive. And when you dig it up, you can eat those roots and the plant stays alive. And they were a staple in the American diet a hundred years ago. Everybody went out and got up their they dug their burdock root tea and their dandelion root tea and they drank that you know, with all their meals. Put these roots in soups and stews and this has been going on for thousands upon thousands of years because it's, and, and, and because they're the first things that are available in the spring when you're really hungry and all your grains are gone. 
And those roots are very bitter, alkaloid roots with berberines and things like that. Our, our liver repair product is exactly like that, designed for that. Turmeric, another one. Ginger, another one. Um, and they're very bitter, and they clean all the mucus off the intestinal tract. So here's what happens in the springtime, naturally. is Naturally, in the winter, you have, it's very, very dry, and the mucous membranes can get very, very dry. Nature's response to that dryness is, produced, is to uh, give us, you know, uh, 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 heavier, higher protein, higher fatty foods to su- lubricate and support the intestinal skin. But if that doesn't happen and the intestinal skin gets dry, it produces reactive mucus. In the springtime, nature's new year, in that mucus, if everything starts to blossom and grow like crazy in the spring, there's a huge surge of microbiology everywhere and you have a bunch of mucus lined in there, we're in big trouble. That's going to proliferate all the wrong kind of bugs. So nature says, here's all these bitter roots that you're going to dig up and scrub and clean all those villi out with these bitter roots. Dandelion root tea, golden seal, you know, ginger, turmeric, uh, all these berberine-rich, orangey roots that you see are loaded with, with alkaloid agents, constituents that clean and scrub your intestinal villi. So simple, right? Well, that's exactly what sort of has to happen to the intestinal tract when you have SIBO and candida. You've got to go in there and scrub a little bit with gentle scrubbing agents. These are roots that are gentle, much different than taking sometimes oils like oregano oils or extracts of grapefruit seed oil, grapefruit seed oil, which can be very, very aggressive. These are sort of naturally occurring foods that have been time tested for thousands of years, but they scrub the mucus and the villi, and with that out of the intestinal tract comes some of these bad microbes, which are very valuable. Number two, next thing out of the ground is these, this sort of fluorescent green harvest that comes in nature. This fluorescent green harvest is loaded with chlorophyll. Chlorophyll was the number one thing we used to use 30 years ago uh, for healing the ileocecal valve. Yes, just going and buying chlorophyll from your health food store, whether it be in little pearls or the liquid, um, but you can take chlorophyll. Very important to begin to bring an environment that only supports good microbes. Spirulina is similar, has an effect. Chlorophyll, a little bit more specific and better for the IC valve. A good place to start. Secondly, herbs that are harvested in the springtime that we know in Ayurveda are harvested from the spring and taken aggressively in India as Ayurvedic medicine all the way through to the end of the summer is neem. Neem is a, is a, is a, uh, and not neem oil, that's a, a very powerful aggressive medicine, just neem leaves and, and a capsule. And the neem is, is antiseptic for the bad bacteria. It's called the queen of the skin, supports the health and integrity of the intestinal skin. Um, it supports the growth of good bacteria and eradicates the, the bad bacteria. So it's very, very effective for, and gentle and kind, really gentle and kind for your intestinal skin and even the skin on the outside. Very, very effective neem is, and I, and I love neem for that. Um, so so uh, chlorophyll, neem, really good herbs to be thinking about um, ingesting. Um, probiotics like um, Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a yeast that is very, very effective for knocking out the bad bugs. Studies have shown that Saccharomyces actually knocks out uh, small uh, bowel intestinal overgrowth and candida. So it's absolutely the probiotic of choice. The one we use is called Gut Revival, which has the, um, which has the, um, the Saccharomyces, along with um, specific strains of colonizing bacteria like Lactobacillus HN019, which is a specific strain, and, 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 and Lactobacillus plantaris. 
different uh, strains that have been proven to adhere to the gut wall. And inside your intestinal tract, you have good guys, bad guys, and you have a whole bunch of spectators that are overpopulating the Western microbiome. And you have these spectators that take over and overpopulate. And they don't do anything necessarily good or bad generally, but they take up real estate. And the bad bugs, therefore, are, not, are, are, are able to sometimes outperform the good bugs. So what you want to do is you want to get more good bugs. You do that by getting rid of the bad bugs and the spectator microbes. And you do that with things like, like chlorophyll, like neem, sort of Ayurveda's probiotic in a way. Uh, of course, cheese and yogurts and things were, buttermilks were also natural probiotics historically as well. Um, and um, the neem and the, the saccharomyces and the chlorophyll, those are three really, really good things to start with. Fast forwarding up to the digestive system, which is a problem because now my acid production is so weak that, okay, stay with me here for a second because I just jumped from your, from the intestinal tract and the large intestine, the neem and the, and the uh, saccharomyces, uh, and that product is called Gut Revival, by the way, and, and, the, uh, and the chlorophyll. Really, really good herbs to start with. And there are other ones that are really good for the intestinal skin, like, like amalaki, uh, Indian gooseberry, which is a powerful herb. I use it all the time for healing and repairing the intestinal skin. Very, very good. Another herb called Brahmi, Brahmi brain, is really good. When you have brain fog, it's a healing agent for the stomach lining, the intestinal lining, and a microcirculation lymphatic agent. And since it's been used for thousands of years for brain function, mental clarity, better sleep, and all that, it helps to drain the brain, the, these microcirculation lymphatic uh, uh, channels called lymphatics. So if there's brain fog or energy issues, Brahmi is a, is a, a great herb to add to that. Okay, now let's, let's move up to the stomach. Remember how we got there. Intestinal tract gets irritated. Intestinal tract, you get constipated, looser stools. We process all of our stress through our intestinal tract. That irritates the intestinal skin, which is like the three little bears. It can't be too dry, constipated, it can't be too wet, mucus, you're loose. It's got to be just right for the bugs to proliferate. If that doesn't happen, Toxins can move out of your intestinal tract, yes, into your lymph, but also into your large, into your liver, where it congests your liver, affects bile flow, affects bile function, gallbladder concerns, which are epidemic. And that bile buffers the acid in your stomach. If there's no, not enough bile and all this acid in your stomach, you're going to get burning, heartburn, indigestion, upward moving pressure into your diaphragm and the lymph things we discussed, right? But also, eventually, the stomach will just realize, I can't keep this acid in my stomach any longer. It's going to burn a hole through me. So the stomach makes an executive decision to turn the fire down. And now you have achlorhydria, lack of stomach acid. And now, foods that go into your, into your stomach, any of them, bugs, microbes, there's nothing there to, to digest it. It's an environment. And you're talking about the very delicate lining of your intestinal stomach skin. Anything will irritate it, inflame it, rip it to shreds, cause inflammation in your stomach, proliferating all types of undesirable microbes like H. pylori that's proliferate in a low acid environment that can irritate, create heartburn, and cause real problems in the upper stomach. 
this is what happens, is that the stomach becomes so sensitive to anything you put in it, because all the acid that's supposed to emulsify and eradicate and break everything down isn't there anymore. So now you have an environment where, where everything becomes, everything becomes an irritant to the stomach lining. And that allows you to, creates you, makes it very difficult to digest anything hard to digest. Wheat, dairy, they're out. Corn, soy, nuts, seeds, they're out. Fish, meats, they're out. Next we know we're a vegetarian. Next we know we're a vegan. Next we know we're trying to do raw foods. But that you can't do that either because it's too harsh. So we're eating bone broth. It's the only thing we can actually tolerate. Or cooked vegetables. So yes, cooked vegetables, bone broths, you know, uh, soupy uh, stews made with quinoa and very easy to digest grains, maybe rice. Kitchery for some people works great. Not for everyone. Uh, which is the mung bean uh, rice soup that you cook. And, and, and perhaps my, my favorite technique to help turn that digestion system on, number one, is drink a large glass of water 30 minutes before the meal. What that does, no spices or herbs in it or anything like that, and what that does is your stomach lining is 95% water. The buffering layer that buffers the acid from your stomach is 95% water. If you drink a big glass of water 30 minutes before the meal, that water will hydrate that buffer layer and prehydrate your stomach. So the stomach goes, well, I have all this buffer here. I can make some acid. I can, I can cook a little here today. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I can buffer some of this acid. So the stomach will be willing to make it. But if you're dehydrated, like two-thirds of the American population, according to some studies, that may be a factor as to why your stomach fire dialed down in the first place. Stress and ingestion and constipation and all that is a factor as well. But hydration is a big piece of it. So that's step one. 30 minutes before the meal, big glass of water. Step two, herbs that I use in our gentle digest formula, ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. Individually are incredible herbs to reboot your digestive strength. Coordinated all together, there's good science, and I've written about that in my newsletter, and you can read the science, we'll attach that article, that talks about when these are individually, they're great, they're great, they do great things for your digestion, but together, they have this incredible ability to, to increase digestive acid, to increase bile flow, to increase duodenal enzymes, pancreatic enzymes, to increase lymphatic drainage around the intestinal tract, and create an environment for better microbiology. All of that by these five digestive spices, which have been used for thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine. How cool is that? And it wasn't like an enzyme that just did the, it was an enzyme that you just, that did the digesting for you, or taking hydrochloric acid to just make acid for you. It actually increased the production of the hydrochloric acid in your stomach. It increased the production of your own pancreatic enzymes, duodenal enzymes, and delivered them through cleaner bile ducts and pancreatic ducts. It's one of my favorite, absolutely favorite formulas, and it's called Gentle Digest because it is super gentle and very, very easy to digest for most people. So that's a, a very effective uh, way. If we have also two other formulas for digestion, uh, one called Cool Digest, if the heartburn is just too much for you and you, and you really want to just cool it down and strengthen it at the same time, that's a formula that I really love. And there's also one called Warm Digest, when everything is just so boggy and mucusy that we need to fire the digest system up, and that's another herbal formula as well. But I always like starting with the Gentle Digest. So those are... Uh, very, very important as well. Um, so we turn on the upper digestion. We cook vegetables. We have soups, easy to digest bone broths. 
to help heal and repair. We add the gut revival, the Saccharomyces, and some and colonizing probiotics to the mix. And then we're sort of in delicate territory here, okay? We're in very delicate territory. We have maybe the, we're tolerating the chlorophyll, the neem, maybe the amalaki. Uh, we've got those herbs in place. We're starting to do some gentle healing and repairing. Now, what we do is we take a formula, which is one of my absolute favorites, which is called the Slippery Elm Prebiotic Formula. And what you do, it's, it's a combination of Slippery Elm, Marshmallow, and Licorice Root. And you boil it down to, uh, from two quarts of water down to a half a quart. So you, and then you strain off all the fiber part. I mean, it's still a slimy, viscous tea, but most of the fiber is gone. You make a decoction out of this. And it's a powerful medicine to sort of coat the entire intestinal tract. We need to do that because your intestinal skin is raw. Your stomach lining is raw. So we need to protect it like the Pepto-Bismol commercial to protect it. And once we do that, and we also have in there with it the herbs like neem and amalaki and also the gut revival, which has the Saccharomyces yeast and the colonizing probiotics, we're now creating environment and the upper digestive support. So what you're eating is easy to digest and you're turning the digestive on gently and slowly. And we're pulling all these strings and we start to turn this thing back on. I hope that makes sense. Then, while we're doing that, you have to look at possibly the most important piece of the puzzle of all, which is your diet overall in general. It has to be really pure and stress. Or what are we doing to take the stress out of our intestinal tract, which is that's where it goes. 95% of our serotonin and other neurotransmitters are, are, are really processed, manufactured, and stored in your intestinal tract. So if you're living in the same stress and not making any attempts to de-stress yourself or, or create a, 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 a lifestyle that allows stress to wash off like water off a duck's back as opposed to take out your intestinal tract each time, it becomes difficult to turn the corner. So meditation is very important. We have our free one-minute meditation, which is like a minute. It takes a minute to do it. So easy, so simple to do. I highly recommend that you take a look at that, uh, the one-minute meditation. And, uh, and we even have a longer meditation course. If you have difficulty uh, meditating, we have, we have a whole course. It's a six-week course of six meditations for emotional freedom because it's more important to learn how to meditation and have success with it. And, but also, more importantly, to know what to do with the awareness that you get from meditating. It heightens your awareness, usually of what are the things that are affecting you, disturbing you, and from there, how do I take action to free myself from those old stressors, those old emotional patterns of behavior? These, you know, and when you get yourself into a pickle with SIBO and candida, it takes a little effective, you know, a little pulling of different strings. And of course, without speaking about sugar, I, I hope it goes without saying that that's, you know, torture for your intestinal tract. And uh, fake sugars destroy all the microbiology. So that's a really important piece of the puzzle. I'm going to swing over here and try to answer some questions if I could. Um, uh, uh, where am I here? Um, hang on a second. Here we are. Okay, so a couple of questions. Do you, do you have to treat SIBO before you're able to heal your gut? No, I don't think so. Like I think I just sort of described, it's sort of a process of 
healing the gut, opening the IC valve, making sure you drink the water. You know, if you have issues up and through here, do the stomach pulling techniques that I've written about on my and other videos on. It's sort of like I'm putting out hopefully a buffet for you to look at all the possibilities with stomach pulling, the IC valve techniques, um, the chlorophyll, the neem, the amalaki, the gut revival. Uh, they all do a little bit of everything without overwhelming your intestinal skin, changing your diet, of course, but most people already pulled that off. What are some, some essential oils that help with this? This is where I'm not a big fan. Essential oils are very harsh. They're, the mo they're very powerful. I get it. I used to use them for years and years and years, but they're very, very acidic. And that acidicness is what we don't want because your intestinal skin is super delicate. You can put it on the outside of your body for sure, but not on the inside. Do you think smoothies, what herbs would you suggest adding if I want to make smoothie as part of the, of the cleanse? Uh, what would you advise or not? Um, I wonder, uh, I'm wondering if Ayurveda does not encourage raw greens. I wonder why, why not? Most of you who have SIBO uh, know that your intestinal tract is already so raw, it can't handle the fiber. And raw vegetables just don't cut it. And, you know, in Ayurveda, they never really were a big fan of raw vegetables. They always liked cooked vegetables. And it turns out the cooked vegetables are actually better healing, soothing for your intestinal skin and better in healing, soothing for the microbiology because you sort of pre-digest some of those fibers. Um, you know, and it, all of it depends on sort of how robust and your strength of your digestion is and how resilient your intestinal skin is. Now, we have issues like candida and SIBO. You don't have great resiliency of your intestinal skin. So, you know, we have a green smoothie we use in our Colorado cleanse, which is, you know, taking any greens, could be string beans and zucchini and celery and, and cook, steaming them and, and then blending them with the water you steamed it in. Uh, and, and the more it, you want to take them until they turn that bright, bright fluorescent green uh, color of the greens, and then you can blend them. They're usually very soft at that point. Fiber's been broken down, and that makes really good sense. Uh, at, time, at times, I get tingling in my tongue. Is this a sign of candida? Um, not necessarily a sign of candida. It's a sign of a hypersensitivity reaction to certain foods, maybe certain acids that are in certain foods like avocados or mangoes, things like that. It means, it means that you're, you're having a little bit of a hypersensitivity reaction, which means that the lymph that lines your intestinal skin might be a little bit boggy. Your lymphatic collecting ducts, your lacteals could be congested. You want to go in there and clean house and scrub a little bit. My favorite lymphatic herb is mangista. Uh, to help decongest lymph works fantastically for things like eczema and lymph-related skin issues that I use all the time. Uh, but also, uh, you know, you know, herbs and greens like chlorophyll and chlorophyll-rich greens, but cooked are going to be very, very, uh, very nourishing for that to help get that lymph to move. Remember, lymph movers, which line the intestinal skin, are the things that make your skin red, like dyes, like beets and cranberries and berries and pomegranates and cherries, things like that, are going to be your lymphomas. Plus your greens are also very, very good as well. Um, uh, how do you take care of H. pylori without antibiotics? Does it make sense to keep taking it if you're acceptable to, to time and time again? Um, uh, one of the things that uh, seems to help with H. pylori is mastic gum, which you can get locally at your health food store, and that helps to knock down some of the that, that the H. pylori, but really the key to healing H. pylori, to dealing with it, is to bring the balance back, to heal the, the, the lining of your intestinal tract, which is why I like the Slippery Elm Marshmallow Licorice Prebiotic cooked down from two quarts to a half a quart, strained, 
tea to slime up, lubricate, and heal your intestinal skin, and then add in colonizing probiotics, whether it be the Gut Revival or our Flora Restore, which is just the colonizing probiotics. That's a good thing to do as well. I tested positive for SIBO last year. was treated with uh, Rifamaxin. I heard that SIBO can come back. <clears throat> is that true? Unfortunately, the studies with Rifamaxin are that it is temporary, and that's sort of how we started this whole conversation was whether it would be herbal agents that kill bad bugs or whether it be antibiotics. Generally, these problems, unfortunately, come back which is why I fell in love with Ayurveda and I fell in love with rebooting digestion. Yeah, it's challenging. It's a trick to navigate. You can know, think of an antibiotic feel better, but then oftentimes it doesn't last. And that's the science that's talking, not me talking about the rifamaxin, you know, having limited success or not permanent success. Uh, what does Ayurveda say about the unhealthy gut and psychosis? Any connection? Uh, well, not just Ayurveda relates to that the intestinal skin the large intestine is a seat of vata, the seat of your nervous system. We have 95% of your serotonin being produced there, your dopamine being produced there. We have a thing called the gut-brain access. Whatever happens in your gut is happening in your brain. Whatever's happening in your brain is happening in your gut. It's a bi-directional pathway. So absolutely, the health of your intestinal tract, the health of your skin, the health of your digestion is critical for mental health. In fact, Ayurveda says that 85% of all disease and all conditions are dealt with and treated by your, by your digestive system, making sure that is on fire, you could say. Um, uh, uh, I heard from other non-Ayurvedic practitioners that oil does not belong in the colon. Any thoughts? Um, and comments about fecal transplants. Um, and I heard you speak in Pat Bow, that was in California in 1992. Huh, oh, long time ago. Okay, so uh, here's the interesting thing. Um, ghee, clarified butter, is primarily butyric acid. There are microbes in your large intestine called Clostridium butyricum that literally make butyric acid for a living. So somehow in Ayurveda, they knew if you take ghee, take milk and boil it all, the milk solids off of it, and you make ghee, this oil, and you eat it, ingest it, this does great things for your intestinal tract, great things for your health, and now we have good science to prove that. So, so yes, some oils are very good for your intestinal tract, and some of them are probably not. Um, but, but uh, you know, we're not talking about some of the oils that are bad for you are all these processed oils that have been bleached and, and deodorized, then there's nothing in them that can be, there's nothing in them that are digestible. They're just, they're impossible for us to digest or break down by our gallbladder. Could SIBO be the cause of underweight problems? Is L-glutamine a good source to repair the intestinal lining? SIBO, yes, can be a source of uh, underweight because you're not absorbing anything anymore. The, the SIBO has altered the effectiveness of your, of your enzymes, which don't let you digest or break things down or deliver them, and also blocked your collecting ducts of your intestinal tract, so you can't deliver, either detoxify or deliver. L-glutamine is one sort of Western naturopathic way of doing it. It's taking a very specific amino acid, which doesn't exist in nature in such concentration, into your intestinal tract to do repair. It's the naturopathic camp I talked about. Very, very viable, and I'm nothing against it. It can be very, very effective. Um, can I eat organic non-GMO popcorn <laughs> while, on a, uh, while trying to get rid of candida? <coughs> corn and popcorn are very hard to digest. So not the first food when you're trying to rebuild your microbiology or repair your intestinal skin. 
What correlation, if any, do you see patients with gut dysbiosis issues and adrenal issues, especially adrenal fatigue or insufficiency? Like I said, when the intestinal system breaks down, what happens is the energy, the fats, the triglycerides, are supposed to go through your intestinal wall into your lymphatic collecting to deliver in-between meal energy isn't there. So the body feels tired and sends a message to the brain, I'm tired. The brain goes, why are you adrenals not giving me energy? What's going on? You're going to be fired. And, of course... The adrenals go, well, okay, we'll do it. We'll, we'll figure it out. So they borrow money from your reproductive organs. They borrow money from your uh, blood sugar. They pull down the menu, and the brain says, give me more sugar. Or they pull down the menu and say, you know, and they upregulate the thyroid to make more thyroid energy. Now the thyroid's out of whack, and your female hormones are out of whack. Your testosterone's lower. Your progesterone's out of whack. This is how the body borrows from Peter to pay Paul to make energy, because the brain says, I need the fuel. So, yes, dysbiosis causes a problem in the lymph, which is a delivery system for baseline energy, and not to mention just new basic good old-fashioned nutrition to give you what you need to make energy happen. All of that is so directly related. That's the beauty of Ayurveda, and I love it, is that it's so connected. Everything makes sense and is connected. Uh, adhesions and inflammation can be factors in a SIBO. Um, what herbs do you use to address these factors? Do you ever use Boswella? Boswella is a great herb. And once, one thing about Boswella, Ayurvedically speaking, it's one of the herbs we use for joint pain because it breaks up scar tissue in the intestinal tract. But Boswella, which is always interesting, all this research for years was Boswella is really good for ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, conditions that most joint anti-inflammatories would just be terrible for. Boswella was always on the list of things that were good for the intestinal skin. So yes, Boswella has a tendency to break up scar tissue and adhesions that line the intestinal tract, and the biofilms, so does the Saccharomyces do it as well. So Boswella, we have a product called Joints Plus, Boswella Joints Plus, which we use for that as well, for, for sure. Great question. Um, uh, I've been on medication for a long time, just completed the cleanse, order of Mangista, Amalaki, Gut Revival today. Am I, am I on the right track to get my bowels and intestines working again? Yeah, absolutely. Mangista for the lymphatic system, Amalaki to heal or repair your skin, Gut Revival to repopulate, with good guys and knock out some of the bad guys, that's what has to happen. Can you, link, can you explain the link between uh, SIBO and fat metabolism or fat malabsorption? Yes, I sort of have. But in addition to when the intestinal tract gets congested and toxins go back to your liver and congest your bile and your bile gets thick, you're not metabolizing fats because your bile is your fat emulsifier. If that bile isn't emulsifying the fats to smaller little tiny pieces, they can't get into the bloodstream, they're too big. And if the stomach isn't making acid to break down the proteins, they go into your small intestine unbroken down, and they're too big for the bloodstream. The fats are too big for the bloodstream, so they go into your lymph. And the fats that, and, that are big and congestive, and the proteins like gluten and dairy and casein, they congest the lymph, and they create problems with the lymphatic system delivering that baseline energy that you would look at from a fat metabolic point of view. But the gallbladder and the bile flow, if it's not there, you're not going to emulsify the fats at all, and they'll go undigested uh, either into the toilet as looser stools or, 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 or a host of other kinds of issues. Uh, is it necessary to stay on a paleo-type diet if SIBO is chronic? You know, that's a, a loaded question because the paleo diet means so much. I mean, you know, I just wrote an article that came out yesterday about, you know, a Harvard researcher, anthropologist, said the paleo diet that's being practiced today is nothing paleo. There's nothing paleo. People in the paleolithic era didn't eat what the paleo people are saying we should eat today. So what is really paleo? I would suggest that, yes, bone broths are good, cooked vegetables are good, 
you know, grains have anti-nutrients on them, so they're harder to break down and digest, and they become issues with people with really delicate intestinal skin, so you have to be careful. And that's why in Ayurveda, they would take kitchari, which is white rice, and they would hand dehusk it. And they would take the beans, the split, the mung beans, and they would split it in half. The husk would fall off, and they would cook it with herbs and spices that were super good for your digestion, like the five spices I mentioned, ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, cardamom, and ginger, and cook it with that, and with ghee, and make this like medicinal soup for your intestinal tract, with all the fiber taken off of it. So that, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, I have a new book coming out soon called Eat Wheat. We have proof, good science that shows that we're eating wheat and grains for four million years. Not 10,000, like they said. So there's, there, 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 you don't have to be strictly meat and vegetables because that can create a long-term some problems as well. But everybody's a little bit different, so it's just trying to pull those strings and repair in a kind and gentle way. This is a problem. It's a real problem, and it's, and it's created a lot of super hypersensitive intestinal tracts. But the key is not to kill the bugs necessarily because it tends to come back is to repair the environment so the good bugs can proliferate and gently create an environment where those bad bugs just don't want to be around. And that's sort of the, the, the general theme. Um, I'm going to swing over and ask some questions uh, online. If anybody has a question, you can push star two and uh, um, let me know if you have any questions and I'll, and I'll pick up and, and do that. In uh, Burlington, Vermont, are you there? I am a Vata, and I do have all those things that you're talking about, plus, plus, plus. But anyway, um, I, um, I eat a healthy diet. I don't eat any of those, those um, allergy-prone foods like corn. I don't do any gluten, dairy, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I already know that, that those don't work for me. I don't find that grains and beans work for me, even the non-gluten right now. Um, my question is, what are, what are your thoughts about fruit and um, juicing? I mean, I do probably eat more fruit than I should. I know that I need to cook my vegetables, but I do eat a lot of fruit. And also, what do you think about juicing? Okay, great question. Thank you. Um, so here's the deal with that. In Ayurveda, fruit was considered to be something that you eat by itself. Uh, fruit... If you were found an apple tree or a blueberry patch, you're probably going to do, you're not going anywhere else until you eat as many of those as you possibly can. And fruits have a lot of sugar in them, a lot of fructose in it. Fructose makes energy, but it makes it slowly. Grains have a lot of sugar, glucose in it, and we have, uh, we have um, enzymes that directly break down the glucose and deliver it, or the sucrose, and deliver it right into our bloodstream. So, so when you eat, you know, say wheat and fruit together, or grain and fruit together, you're going to get, um, you know, on one hand, the grain is going to deliver the energy very quickly, but the fruit's going to go very, very slowly, and it's going to create and turn into triglycerides, which are good baseline sources of fuel uh, for the body, but they can congest your liver and cause issues if it's done in, in excess. Also, the fruit uh, will ferment in your stomach more quickly than the grain. And that, because it gets to, because of the sugar in the fruit breaks down very, very quickly in your, in your mouth and in your upper stomach, and that can cause bloating and, and issues like that. So it's just, it's, it's a sort of a food combining issue. And, um, but if you wanted to do juicing, better off blending, um, for nutrition, uh, as a cleanse, I think there's great value in that. 
I think that having, you know, when you get to be a better digester and a better blood sugar uh, stabilizing agent, better fat burner, you can actually have fruit as a meal, believe it or not. That's sort of what it was designed to do. Breakfast as a meal or having a, a fruit for dinner as a meal in the right season makes perfect sense. But a lot of us just feel like we have to eat so much carb and so much fat to get satisfied. We don't feel satisfied. But as you become a better digester, more efficient, you can make the energy last with just a fruit as a meal. That said, apples and some of the non-sweet fruits can be mixed a lot easier than the super sweet fruits, which have been hybridized to be sweet because we have this thing about sweet. We all do, I do too. But the issue is having enough sense to realize that that's not what nature created, that's what man created, and we don't have the genetics to handle that kind of fruit or that kind of sweet so much. Uh, another question in Bozeman, Montana, are you there? Yes, thank you. You bet. <clears throat> I want to go back to um, the smoothies you had mentioned um, a little bit ago. If, and I know you say you want to have um, more cooked, um, but if you're doing smoothie that has green, um, say celery, um, maybe dandelion or um, collard greens or something like that, with a lemon or lime, maybe an orange, um, but you add ginger to that or cinnamon to that to, to bring the warming in, would that be okay? It seems like we've done this huge shift to these green smoothies and everybody's doing green smoothies and it's kind of confusing. Um, really great question. Here's the thing about green smoothies or, or, or juicing anything, you know, is that we don't have to chew it if we juice it. And there is something very, very valuable about chewing. Matter of fact, it, it creates brainwave function. It creates smarter people. Chewing does. They actually here in Colorado, they give kids chewing gum to make them smarter for standardized testing. There's really good science behind chewing. And when you just drink all your meals, we don't get to we don't get to do that. And there's a problem there. A real it's a blood circulation problem, a lymphatic drainage problem for your brain. The lymphatics they move by chewing. So we don't want to not do that. Now, a little bit of a green smoothie uh, as a micronutrient supply while you're eating your meal or with your meal can be great. I think adding things like ginger and adding things like cinnamon can help heat it up is great. Now, if you're just juicing, then you're looking at not having a lot of fiber, so it's not really that big of an issue. You're just getting micronutrient a delivery system for the micronutrients. If you're blending and you have all that fiber and it's raw, then that can over time irritate the intestinal tract because we're not used to having that much fiber. A lot of people have issues with that. So it's a sensitive thing and it's a balancing thing. It's a seasonal thing. We know that, you know, my big story that I've talked for years about how the deer, when the deer eat bark in the winter and they, and they can digest it not without a problem, they eat leaves in the summer. And if they ate bark in the summer, they wouldn't have the enzymes nor would they have the microbiology to digest the bark in the summer. It would cause such a level of indigestion, it would kill the deer. When I read that, I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me deer die when they eat out of season and we just eat at whatever we eat, green smoothies in January, we don't care. Eat anything we want, whatever we want. But nature had stuff in the soil, bugs in the soil that were pro proliferating and attracted to certain plants in that season that when we eat them become our microbiome to support better digestion in the winter, better immunity in the winter, better decongestion in the spring, better dissipation of heat in the summer. All these things are based on our natural connection to nature, which is why I wrote the book, The Three Season Diet, and why 
uh, that wasn't enough. Not enough people read it. So I said, let's just put it out every single month. So we put out a grocery list for May and April and June and all the months and, and give people, you know, spoon feed them the information, the grocery list, the recipes to get them to reconnect with the microbiology that comes from the soil in and that changes with every single food in season. Very, very important. Now, a little bit of micronutrient juicing, fine, but don't make that a way of life. Have it as part of the meal, drink it along with the meal, but don't make it the meal. That's my, my two cents on, on juicing. It's not a bad thing. And in seasonal, seasonally, yeah, warmer stuff, beets and things like that in the winter and, and leafy greens in the spring and the summer, yes, makes more sense. Fruits, again, try to have them alone and vegetables have them alone um, and, and, and do the best you can. Um, next question, in the, twin, in the Twin Cities, are you there? Yes. Hi. Hi there. Um, I have seen in your article that you mentioned joint pain can be an issue with SIBO and candida. And I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that and also if it even can be to the level of like a rheumatoid arthritis or like a really painful red swollen joint situation, uh, kind of an acute situation rather than just everyday aches and pain of joints. Great question. Thank you. So here's the thing about when they discovered those lymphatics in the brain and the central nervous system, they linked those to autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. They linked those to uh, mood-related issues, inflammation and infection. Okay. So and I've written a bunch of articles about that if you want to go back and watch that. But what's interesting about the lymph that we know ayurvedically is the lymph drains, we know this not just ayurvedically, we know that the lymph drains all the toxins from everywhere, from your skin, from your joints. And if the lymph is congested, you're going to get issues in your joints. That's why we get osteoarthritis in your knuckles or rheumatoid arthritis in your hands or your feet because these are drain-clogging issues. Your nutrition can't get in to lubricate the joint because the waste can't get out. You want to track that back to digestion, intestinal skin, intestinal lymph, upper digestive strength. We want to track it down, but also you want to support the function of the joints as well. So, so if the lymphatic system is congested because of digestion um, and altered microbiology, then yeah, that can create your lymph issues and that can back up into skin-related issues like eczema, joint congested issues like arthritis, uh, swelling, rings getting tight in your fingers, holding onto water, ankle swelling, things like that are all lymph-related. And in time, with aging and degeneration and toxicity and poor digestion, they can manifest or trigger an autoimmune response like RA or rheumatoid arthritis, which is now linked to these central nervous system lymphs, which they didn't even know existed until six or eight or nine months ago. So pretty interesting, great question. Yes, the joint pain thing is sort of like the, the tiredness thing and the brain fog thing. It's just that's all about getting the good stuff in through the lymph. But remember, the lymph is bi-directional. It also takes the waste out. Um, well, it's actually not too sorry about that. It's taking the good stuff through into the bloodstream. It's also taking the bad stuff through into the bloodstream so it can go to the liver and get processed. It's not going opposite direction, sorry. It's going one way, but carrying two things, good stuff and bad stuff, okay? Good proteins and bad proteins and good fats and bad fats. Or when I say bad proteins, I'm saying undigested proteins, okay? That should have been broken down more completely. Uh, in Fort Wayne, um, Indiana, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. Hi, you betcha. Um, yeah, I 
different herbs as you had mentioned. Um, is there any contradiction, like for example, if you take the probiotics with the neem or with the other um, herb that you had mentioned, is there anything that will, is there a recommended time that you take those? Well, here's... Here's what I, that's a great, super great question. You know, how do you navigate this? And this is the part where you take something like SIBO, which is a pretty complicated condition, or candida, and how do you navigate? So I threw a lot on the buffet table, and I that probably maybe should have done that. But things that are kind of like chlorophyll is a food-based substance, you know, I think is really gentle and kind for the intestinal tract. Uh, neem is a food. It's just leaves ground up, put in a capsule you know, is, uh, is a great way to start, you know, testing the water of your intestinal tract. The, the upper digestive support, ginger, cumin, corner, fennel, and ginger, cardamom, I mean, they're gentle. You, you can make it at home even and cook with those spices and start bringing that back into balance into your vegetables, things like that. So it doesn't even have to be like buying product and take it. It can be something that you can sort of just bring into your, into your diet. Creating green smoothies that are cooked vegetables and then blending them, you know, you lots of greens, you're cooking them, breaking down the fiber and delivering chlorophyll. Uh, so these are our ways to navigate that. Um, but if I had to pick three things to start with, it'd probably be the gentle digest, the gentle, the gut revival, and the chlorophyll and neem, four things. Those are the things that I would look at, you know, and, um, uh, and uh, you probably need, you know, to really bring the balance back, you need a little oomph in the right direction, but in small tiny, safe, uh, tolerable dosages, which is the key. Um, but really great question. And that's what we, that's what we call a practice. Every doctor is in practice because we're practicing with each patient trying to figure out what's the best you know, sequence, what's the best dosage so that they can tolerate to, get the, to, to make the, give them the traction that they need so the body can begin to repair and heal itself. That's what I feel like what we're trying to do is unleash your body's ability because it knows what it wants to do, but it's sort of stuck in this pattern of the wrong bugs in the wrong place. Uh, okay, in, uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, hang on a second. Are you there in Worcester? Hi, yes. <laughs> Hi, can you, um, do you have any general thoughts about wheatgrass as a healing remedy? And I'm not sure what season that falls within um, for things like um, chronic fatigue syndrome or yeah. uh, related? Great, great question. Wheatgrass is, is harvested in the spring. It's a, it's a grass, so it comes in the early spring. And, uh, um, and, and super loaded with nutrients. It's um, very, very effective. It's, it, it can be a little bit harsh for certain people who have really delicate intestinal skin. But in an ideal intestinal tract where there's some intestinal things, that wheatgrass was gobbled up. And it wasn't just, I mean, they didn't have in the paleo days little pressers to press the grass like that. They would eat the grass. And if you eat the grass, it's actually quite tasty. But the drink concentrate is actually quite harsh. So we always do that to things, make things more harsh. Um, yet in a good intestinal tract, it can be very, very helpful. Um, but it can be a little bit too much for some people, particularly with SIBO, who are so sensitive to everything. So you kind of boil it back and go, well, well maybe just the chewing on the grass would be a, a, a better way to go. In Sacramento, California, are you there? Sacramento? Yeah. Hi. Um, yes, hello. My question is, 
about the probiotics. Um, I work in the wellness department and I hear a lot of different information from different companies on the probiotics and I get customers asking questions like when is the best time to take probiotics? Can I take it with food? Can I take it with drink? So I'm wondering if you can speak to the appropriate time to take probiotics and whether or not to take it with food and drink. Um, well, the thing about probiotics is that, that's a great question too, um, the thing about probiotics is that are they proven to actually make it past the stomach without being broken down by the acid? Because that's what the acid, stomach acid is supposed to do, is kill all these bugs. That's what doesn't happen in SIBO. So you want to make sure that your probiotic has been proven to actually do that. And if that's the case, it doesn't really matter because you're actually, you have something that actually you can go through. In addition to that, um, I'm a big fan of looking for probiotics that have some science to show that they actually do adhere to the gut wall. And some drugs, some probiotics do, and some probiotics don't. Um, and I, I think that's why at least you're, kind of, you're creating something that is in the direction of permanent residency. And you can therefore not have to take it for the rest of your life. And I just can't imagine, this is the world we live in today. It's like, you, we're gonna, are we going to take probiotics to the, every day for, for the rest of our lives? Is that the new plan? I don't really believe that that's what has to happen. I believe the key is to do what we're talking about today is to repair and heal. But uh, in general, a lot of probiotics are said to be taken on an empty stomach because they're, you don't have the stomach acid and they can slip through. Um, however, things like the, the gut revival, we actually like you to take it with the meal because uh, it's indicated at that point in time because of the combination of the saccharomyces and you want, you want those bugs to come in as part of the meal, and I like that idea. I like my herbs to go in, only a handful of my herbs that I use that, that I actually use on an empty stomach, and there's specific ones. Most of the lion's share of them are with food, because I want the herb to be considered a food. I want the body to think this is, oh, this is what I do. I eat this herb, it's a plant, ground up, put in a capsule, it's a food. Uh, the probiotics should be in my foods. They're, they're naturally occurring substances versus a medicine we were delivering on an empty stomach, um, which of course, you, you run the risk. And with probiotics, I don't think it makes that big of a difference, but, I, but in, a, in, gen, in, a, in general, my philosophy is make it food-based so when you get off of it, you don't create a dependency along the way. Uh, thank you for all those questions. I'm going to sneak over and answer one or two more questions And uh, uh, over here. If I've been eating nuts and seeds during SIBO, low FADMAX every day, is there a problem of why I'm not getting better? Um, you know, certain foods like nuts and seeds are going to be harder to digest. And if your digestive strength, whether in your stomach, is, is not there, and these nuts and seeds with anti-nutrients are going into your small intestine, and they could be an irritating and aggravating factor. Not bad for necessary for the microbiology, but just your intestinal skin hasn't been healed enough. And that's why I like using the slimy prebiotic tea that we use to protect your intestinal tract so things that shouldn't irritate your intestinal tract don't irritate your intestinal tract. I call it starting from scratch. And that's what I like to do is, is sometimes start from scratch. But that prebiotic tea, because it has a little bit of fiber in it, some people with really severe cases of SIBO can't do it. Some people can do it easily with SIBO and do okay with it. And that's why I always give that with the, the gut revival to make sure we're giving the prebiotic tea, which has a little bit of fiber in it, but not much, but more of a protective slime, but also with the gut revival, which knocks out the bad bugs and doesn't let any undesirable bugs proliferate by mistake. 
Um, everyone, I want to thank you all for, for joining me tonight. This was a great, lots of questions. I'm sure that you were all very interested. I, I hope I, I didn't get to everybody. I'm sorry. There's a few more I probably didn't answer, but uh, uh, I do have about five articles coming out talking about this in the next couple of months that you'll be seeing. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. And uh, if you have any questions, just let us know. Uh, lots of videos, lots of articles, a lot of self-help 